0: Hello, this is Simon-Pierre Tremblay from Quebec, Canada, and welcome to The
1: Candid Frame. We all have dreams and aspirations for our lives, which include both good health and happiness. And for those of us lucky to have stability and access to health care, we have a reasonable expectation that we'll have a good life into our 70s, 80s, and maybe even longer. But such longevity doesn't always come free of troubles, as those of us who have or are currently caring for elderly family members know all too well. Whether it's due to physical or mental decline, the roles of child and parent are being reversed. Medical issues such as Parkinson's disease, dementia, and Alzheimer's are resulting in financial and emotional demands that few could anticipate and even fewer are prepared for. Photographer Safi Aliyah Shabayak faced that situation after her father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That along with mental health issues, including dementia and sundowners, required that she and her mother care for her father during his decline, she had initially embarked on what she thought would be a recording of family history, but instead it became a collaboration between father and daughter.
0: And I just felt like now I need to do this before my dad gets to a point where he won't be able to tell me his stories, right? And so in 2013, I really wanted to start. I started doing some video of him and logging some of his journey, but it proved that it was slightly difficult for him because of the Parkinson's. And so I realized that instead of being able to log that history, this might actually become more about his current struggle. And we discussed that, and he was open to it, you know, and he agreed that we'll do this together. So we did. And it, again, in 2013, I started this project and he didn't have many signs to photograph so the photos were fewer back then and as the years progressed as the parkinson's exhibited more outward manifestations of the disease it became more apparent that you know the imagery would be more important at that stage because you can actually see what's happening and it wasn't really until the last two years of his life that I became a primary caregiver. I mean, I was there and I was around, but I didn't need to be there on like a you know, moment-by-moment basis.
1: During that time, she made intimate photographs that revealed as much about love and tenderness as they did pain and loss. It was a journey that she and her father experienced together, and it was actually her father that gave a name to the project.
0: One day, uh, this was already at a point where he could not write anymore. He asked me for a piece of paper and a pencil. And so I brought them to him. He wanted to convey something. And so he wanted a paper and a pencil and he really wanted me to bring that. So I brought it over and he took the pencil and he started writing on the paper and I looked at what he was doing and he was just making scribbles. And so I said to him, Papa, do you want me to take some notes? And he said, yeah. So I took the pen and paper, and he said something to the effect of he was aware that he was unaware that he was losing himself. And he, he said that after he... He said something, something, something personality crash, right? And I asked him, what does that mean? What, wh- who's having a personality crash? Is it me? Is it you? Is it someone else? And that's when he said that he was aware that he was unaware that he was losing himself. And to me, that was such an awakening. It was such an awakening that... Uh, allowed me to see that he actually was aware of what he was going through. And I mean, the term, I've never heard the term personality crash before, but could that be any more appropriate for what was going on? I mean, it just fit perfectly.
1: Well, talk to Sophie about the many challenges she faced creating such a personal body of work, as well as discuss her varied career turns as a celebrity stylist for Britney Spears, a personal assistant to Grace Jones, and a turn. As a mortician. This is Ebodian X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. This is going to be fun. Okay. God, you are nervous. I am nervous. I am. This <laughs> Why? is so
0: because I don't know. I feel like I always blank out when people put me on the spot with questions.
1: Uh-huh. There's no need to be nervous. I mean, we talk all the time.
0: Yes. I know. You're my friend.
1: Yeah. And, and this you is give me a good opportunity to kind of dig in deep because we're always sort of talking in passing, in passing. Yes. And we've learned stuff about each other, but it's like it'll this will be a first proper sit-down. Yes. So that's that's that's, that's nice. exciting. So your dad was from Egypt and your mom from Texas? That's correct. That's quite a combination.
0: It is. And they met in uh, Berkeley in the late 60s
1: Oh, of all okay. places. <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> was your dad studying or working up there? He or? was
0: studying. So was my mom. My dad had come from Egypt to study for his grad school years at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And my mom was in her undergrad uh, years. And they met at a party.
1: Well, What was she studying up there?
0: She was studying psychology.
1: Oh, they were both into the sciences. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: He was engineering. She was psychology. Yep.
1: And you grew up here, down here in the Valley?
0: I did. I'm a California native Valley girl, born and raised.
1: So you don't get any hints of a, of a Texas accent in there that you inherited from your mom no, at all?
0: No, not at all. All the LA? <laughs> yeah, all LA. There might be some likes in there from the Valley.
1: <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of people are trying to figure out, well, with a name like that, especially growing up, well, what are you?
0: I think... People just didn't understand my name. They would look at it and say Sophie, Safi, Safi, everything but the correct pronunciation, which is Safi.
1: And what's the language in Egypt? Arabic. Arabic. Mm -hmm. So did you pick up any Arabic?
0: Very little. I wish my dad had taught me more. I wish I were fluent, Um, but it's something I'll have to study on my own.
1: So in terms of your dad's culture growing up and and the culture from Texas, because some people consider Texas...
0: Its entirely.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it was it just, you were just a Cali girl through and through, or did those sort of influences have, a, have an uh, effect in terms of how you were shaped in terms of your identity? Because I know identity is a big, big thing for you.
0: Identity is a big thing for me. I think But they, both of their cultures do have an impact on who I am as an individual. I mean, I was exposed to Middle Eastern culture growing up. It was never something that my family tried to hide or not embrace. It's part of who my dad was. And so it was a part of our life. I mean, we've been to the mosque, we've been to cultural events that are, you know, Arabic events, um, Middle Eastern events throughout my life. Um, on my mom's side, the Texan background, I think ma- maybe that plays into who I am more so because her family was more readily available. So maybe they were, I think I had more exposure to that firsthand, that family firsthand, than to my dad's family. Because most of his, he's one of se- he was one of seven children, one of seven siblings. And when I was younger, the majority of them were still abroad. Two of his brothers did end up moving to America, to California. I want to say when I was... One of them came out when I was probably about seven, and he lived with us for a short period. And the other one followed, I don't know, maybe a decade later. I, I don't really know the time frame. But now, two of my dad's brothers are local. So
1: When I grew up in, in the 70s, I, when it came to about filling out forms, mm-hmm. in terms of identifying your ethnicity, it was white, black... Mexican, other, other. Uh and so that's what I always did because I didn't. Okay, so you had so people. So when people would ask you, "What are you? What was your? How would you respond?"
0: I mean, I would tell them, "I'm half Egyptian and half American. I'm a mix." (laughs) 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 But I always enjoyed that question on the questionnaire because I would never. I just would always mark other or check all the boxes. I mean, we all are kind of a hodgepodge of the whole world, anyways. We have so many influences, so.
1: Is it, has it changed at all now when you fill out forms? Is it pretty much the, the same thing? It's the way? same. Yeah. yeah. I had to fill out a form when I was applying for this grant. And it was like, they had, did have Afro-Caribbean in there. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess they got me now.
0: <laughs> They've diversified the questionnaire. Yeah.
1: So you got introduced to photography through a pinhole camera. I did. How'd that happen?
0: My mom enrolled me in a science class or a photography class at the Museum of Science and Industry back in... I'll just say the
1: 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Just down the street from where I grew up.
0: Down the street from where you grew up, um, when it was the Museum of Science and Industry. Now it's the California Science Center. They had wonderful workshops for children. My mom enrolled me in a pinhole camera class, and that was the day that changed my life. It just was an incredible class. I didn't know that I could create a device that I could take into the world and replicate imagery through just a simple hole, letting light in and, and closing the light off. I I would say ever since that day, I've had a camera beside me.
1: So was part of the fascination, not just the fact that you could take the pictures, but that you could make the camera?
0: That's a good question. Um, It's hard to go back into my five-year-old brain, but I'm sure part of it was that, the the tactility of making that camera. I mean, we had a 120 millimeter roll of film that we, I think, put in a box or used in the box that it came in and just created that into the pinhole camera. The memory's slightly fuzzy, but I do remember going out into the rose garden and making pictures there. I don't I actually don't know how to answer that.
1: No, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. You don't you don't always have to have answers. That's okay. I don't it's have any it's better to admit that you don't know than to sort of pull something out of your butt. Yeah. You know? Which I i regrettably have done all too often when I was younger and now I know better. But but you know, you got a, You went to UCLA, you yes. got a degree in fine art, but before you got the degree in fine art, you had considered physiology, then anthropology, and then you got to f- fine art. And that's quite a, you know, twisty path to get to that. So why, if you were so fascinated with photography from such a young age, why didn't you just make a beeline for that?
0: I also have a strong science side to myself. I feel like I'm this kind of hybrid between science and art. I've always loved anatomy and physiology. And so when people would ask my sister and I when we were young what we wanted to be, her answer was always a lawyer, which she is today. And my answer was a doctor. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to deliver babies. That's the trajectory Mm. I thought I was going to be on. Even though photography was such a big part of my life, I never saw that as a profession or a career. I think I saw it as just a passion. And, you know, I loved the idea of bringing life into the world And so I thought that was going to be my trajectory. I thought I was going to be a doctor. When I started at UCLA, I started pre-med but undeclared. And I started taking anatomy and physiology classes, which I loved. The dissection lab was fabulous. I mean, I love learning what's going on inside the human body. I think we are incredible beings. And there's so much that goes into us just... Existing in any moment, space, and place, and time that we take for granted, we don't think about on any given day because it's just innate to our being. But I was fascinated by all of the little minutiae of how we exist on a daily basis. But I think I got a little disillusioned when I saw how much chemistry and you know, physics and these other classes that I wasn't so interested in. They were the primary basis of that degree. And there was very little anatomy and physiology that you actually studied. And so I decided, well, maybe I'll pursue some other interests. Let me just explore. You know, I'm still a freshman and I'm still figuring myself out. And so I took a couple anthropology classes and realized that I really loved anthropology. I loved cultural anthropology. I decided at I think that first year or maybe the second year that I was going to kind of move into that area. And I took a lot of anthropology classes and really thought that I would go to South America and live in the Amazon with indigenous cultures and kind of study those lifestyles and how they live off the planet and just kind of exist off of nature and not with modern technology. And... Somewhere along that path, I mean, art has always been a part of my life. Like I mentioned, the pinhole camera class. My mom always had us involved in really creative courses growing up. And I think when I was in college studying anthropology, I realized that there's, there was still this, this desire in me to pursue art and photography and also filmmaking. And so I just kind of migrated to North Campus. I started dabbling in the arts at UCLA and then I just kind of shifted. So it's, it's funny, I started on South Campus, moved into mid campus, which is where the anthropologies were, and then ended up on North Campus, which is where the arts are, and ended up graduating in art. I wanted to switch to film, but I would have had too many credits, so I had to just end it with final. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well-rounded education.
1: Well, what's fascinating about your CV is the diversity of different things that you've done. Jay Mazel has a, a, a saying that he says, if you want to become a better photographer, lead a more interesting life. And you have certainly done that, because when I see all the variety of different things that you've done, it really is uh, amazing
0: eclectic yeah <laughs> certainly
1: eclectic. yeah so let's start with the stuff that you started you started doing stuff in film and then you started working with celebrities in terms of being well you can
0: I'll t- yeah <laughs> you, you can expand. tell
1: because there were so many <laughs> there were so many titles there so it's like as long There's as a my of,
0: yeah a lot of transition I did right after college I started working in big budget Hollywood filmmaking I just kind of wiggled my way in all right, so Catherine Opie became my mentor post-college. She taught me the art of color printing in the dark rooms that she had built at UC Irvine. At that time, she was rising to fame for work she was doing in her community, which is the, at that time, it was the lesbian, leather, dyke, queer, BDSM communities that encompass transgender women and men, drag queens, and also just the, the women who would take on a male persona, And she was doing these really beautiful color portraits of her community. And this kind of work had not really been done at that time. Um, I think it was something new and um, a little bit controversial. So she was getting a lot of recognition for that. Um, She had also done some self-portraits that involved cutting and also BDSM gear. And that was also being released into the world at that time. Simultaneously, I was kind of weaving my way into film production, and I had just taken a leap into big-budget Hollywood filmmaking. I'd been hired on a job for Starship Troopers, the film that Paul Verhoeven did with Sony Pictures. I had been hired as an intern and then finally became hired as a transportation office coordinator on that film. So, my first uh, beginnings in film were in transportation, where I got to know everybody on the cast and crew. I worked with every department, and it was kind of a a trial by fire uh, role to take on. Yeah,
1: the best kind.
0: The best kind. Yes. So, film production lasted for me a couple years after Starship Troopers, I worked on Godzilla. And then I got another offer. I got an offer to do celebrity wardrobe styling. I kind of moved in that direction and fell into that. Just um, happen, happen, stance, happen, chance, happen, stance. Happens, yeah. Yeah, and that job was working with Courtney Love and the band Hole. And I ended up working with them for a year on a team, styling them for music videos, public appearances, the Oscars, various things.
1: That, that just seems like the oddest job to have. Dressing somebody else.
0: It's a little odd, I guess. (laughs) I mean, you would think people can dress themselves, but...
1: Yeah, I I know that. But it's taking it a little further because it's like there's so much strategy behind it. There's a lot of strategy. Yeah. And that for me is sort of the fascinating part of that in terms of someone that takes a role because it's not about just finding something that would look good on this person. They're recognizing the fact that they're going to get a lot of attention wearing whatever designer and a particular time. And, and some, you know.
0: sometimes things are created for that moment too. It's not yeah. always just pulling from designer racks. It's also creating things from scratch. After working with Courtney Levinhole, I freelanced for a little while and then started assisting two guys who were a styling duo, Kurt and Bart. They're out of New York. And they were really creative guys who would design the outfits for Britney Spears. I was working with them, with Britney yeah. Spears. And they would actually create clothing they wouldn't be pulling from racks they would be designing so
1: so what did people when they looked at you and they saw the stuff that you were doing previously what did they pick up about you that go oh she'd be good for this or was it just a an issue of just personality and then they felt like oh i could i could deal working with her
0: probably a combination of a few things like being in the inner circle and and being having your name passed around, meeting people at the right time. Kurt and Bart were kind of in the Courtney Love circle, so I had met them before assisting them. Um, even though they were out of New York, they were in L.A. for various things when I was working with Courtney. And so our circle was, you know, our, our circles overlapped. And during that phase is when I moved to New York, and so all of a sudden now I have I'm in a better proximity, you know, to assist them on projects. So I had already started helping them with Brittany when I was in LA, and when I transitioned and moved to New York, that that venture continued. On another side of things, a friend had introduced me to Grace Jones prior to me moving to New York. Because she lived in New York at the time and was looking for somebody to help her out, actually um, to start a production company for her, which is originally what my friend had basically told me the job position would be. When I got to New York, that wasn't quite ready to start. She was not at a place to start the production company, but she needed a stylist and she needed a personal assistant. And so I fell into that role and she became my solo project.
1: And you became a personal documentarian,
0: I right. did, right. yeah. I mean, she didn't care if I had my camera around or not. You know, I had this window into her life and being who I am, I always had my camera with me anyways. And so she she was open to me photographing whatever we were doing. So I took I took my camera everywhere and documented what I could.
1: And was that this first opportunity that you had to, to use the camera in that way? Or had you been doing it before?
0: You know, I mean, I'd had my camera with me for Courtney and for Brittany, but I didn't really use it in that way I think because I was working for someone else in those instances I was on a team of people and I was not the head of the team I was an assistant I did not pull my camera out so much but with Grace it was different I mean I was with her 24-7 and if there was a Britney job I would go off and do Britney, and then I would come back and be with Grace again so it was more of a familial relationship. It wasn't just a job. I mean, I was there whether something was happening or not. I was just always around doing something.
1: Well, there's a level of intimacy that that pervades your, your work, not just the stuff that you did with your father. So I was curious as to whether it was that period was the sort of the initial birth of that sort of process where you were intimately involved with someone in, in terms of the very the, the um, everyday events of their day, and you're there being observant, making images, but you're also sort of interacting and having a relationship with them.
0: Right. I guess you're right about that. Yeah, that was probably my first instance with that, other than the fact that I was always the friend with the camera growing up. I mean, I had my camera with me in high school, and I would document my friends. In college, I would document my friends, but maybe not... Maybe it was more fleeting back then. It was just like, "Oh, we're at a party, and I'm taking pictures," or "We're hanging out in the dorm room, dorm room, and I'm taking pictures." Or, yeah, <laughs> I, don't but, I don't know where that was going.
1: No, but, but I have a, a question that's probably tied to that: is okay. your your moniker "Flash Bulb Fluzy"?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I said it right. Yes, it's a great name. <laughs> okay. But did that come as a result of you being the gal with the camera?
0: Oh <sighs> well, I think that. Um, I came up with that because well, number one, my name is difficult, and people have a hard time grasping it whenever I tell them, so I needed something in, in in the time that the internet was developed, and there was MySpace, and I forget what the other precursors to Facebook were, but in in the time of social media, you know you you needed something that people could grasp onto to find you in the virtual world, and telling people my name was not such a great way for people to find me because they didn't know how to spell it. They didn't know how to say it. It was very tricky unless they had a piece of paper and I was writing it down for them. They just, they couldn't get it. So I needed something that was catchy. And I think I just had a brainstorm one day and came up with it. I mean, I'm a collector of old cameras. So I have a bunch of old cameras that use flash bulbs and, you know, alliteration. My name is an alliteration, Safia Leah Shabayak. I mean, it's, I feel like alliterations help people remember so Flashbulb Fluzy was born through that process.
1: <laughs> it's a great name. Thank you. I, I like your real name too, but that's a cool <laughs> name as
0: well. <laughs> it's easier to remember.
1: <laughs> so you were in New York during 9-11, and I know that that had a big impact on you. There are a lot of people who witnessed that and whose lives changed tremendously, and they just decided to take on a different path. Yeah. And I think some people would think that That immediately led to you as a photographer, but you took on a completely different job. I did. Which was?
0: I did. So I was styling up until, I was with Grace and Brittany up until September 11th happened. And when that happened, like you said, my whole trajectory changed. I mean, we all thought we were going to die that day. And I decided that wardrobe styling was not the right place for me. It was unfulfilling for me in the grand scheme of things, just because I felt like I wasn't giving back to Humanity or my immediate community in any way, shape, or form that was, I guess, tangible. So I decided to go back to school and kind of fulfill the science side of me again. And I decided it was time for me to become a mortician. I felt like I, I felt like the world or New York at that time needed compassionate people in that profession to help um, manage the loss, the grand nature of the loss that was, um, you know, apparent. Yeah. And, um, I'm a sensitive person. I've been a sensitive person my whole life. And I also had been thinking about things and I'd been kind of toying with the idea of it anyways, before September 11th happened. And when September 11th happened, it just felt like the timing was right. Like I needed to, I needed to kind of feel this new direction out and it would be more meaningful for me and the community.
1: And, and you were seeing it as, as a means by which to be of service to the people who had who had experienced loss.
0: Yes, right? yes, I did. And I also, you know, I'd been thinking about a lot of things prior to um, September 11th. I'd been thinking about, you know, the fact that my parents were aging. I was in a, I was 3,000 miles apart from them. And I'd already been there for, I guess, just a couple years at that point, I'd only been gone for a couple years. But I mean, the fact that my parents were getting older and the fact that I hadn't really experienced loss, personal loss, in, in, other than my mom's mom and maybe a couple friends or their family members, I hadn't really experienced loss, personal loss. And I knew that I needed to prepare myself for that. So that was one of my reasons behind exploring death and dying. Also the fact that we're all mortal. I mean, I'm going to be there at some point too. We're all going to be there. It's something that is unavoidable. Also the fact that um, my dad is Egyptian and the history of embalming stems back to the ancient Egyptians. So there's a cultural exploration there. But I also think that Seeing my mom's mom, when she passed away, she, was a, she had an open casket. And for me as a child, not really having a religious upbringing or, you know, my parents came from two totally different cultures. My dad was raised Muslim. My mom was raised Southern Baptist. And to be honest, throughout my life, neither of them were very active in either religion. Not that they weren't maybe, you know, subscribing to anything, but they just weren't active, actively participating anywhere. It just kind of left me to figure out my own belief system. And I think part of that led me to death. I want to see what it means. What does it mean when you die? Where do you go? Like, what are my beliefs behind all of that? And, you know, our culture doesn't like to talk about these things. They like to sweep it under the rug. And I wanted to confront it just so I would know what to expect in the future. And the timing of September 11th, I mean, brought (laughs) the biggest... The biggest impact of death into the forefront and into my face into into the air of new york i mean you could smell it for like a year you could smell distinct aromas of burning hair burning flesh burning rubber you know just these odors that you're you know from your own personal experience of like accidentally setting your hair on fire you know just these scents that we these scents that we all know innately um
1: was it a way of sort of contending with a combination of, of both fear and probably some form of PTSD? I
0: don't know. I don't know because I had already been contemplating it before September 11th happened. And when September 11th happened, it just was the impetus for for stopping what I was doing and moving my attention to this exploration of what happens when we die. So I don't know if it had to do with that or not. Yeah, I don't know.
1: What's interesting about that work, is I know most people think about what you have to do in order to sort of prepare a, a body, which to me is the sort of the least interesting part of that. And I think because of the losses that I've experienced over the last couple of years, my process for dealing with grief has been something that I've observed in myself. It's something I've been very conscious of. It's something that I haven't really tried to distance myself from. I've sort of embraced the, the pain and... Not because I feel like I need to use it in any sort of creative way, but I felt like I need to own this. I need right. to be fully present in it. But in your position working with people who've lost loved ones, there's any variety of different ways they're coming. They're trying to come to terms with something that some people may have not expected, it happened suddenly, or it may have been leading up to that. What did you learn in terms of the ways people deal with grief? During during those times when you had to sort of be there to talk to them, to sort of walk them through that whole, that whole process?
0: Well, the thing is, you know, we're with them for a very short period of time and grief can last who knows how long for each right. individual. So I don't know that I really got much insight into that working in the funeral business. I think I, I got more insight into what this vessel of my body means and what my energy that Animates me means rather, you know, some people call that your spirit or, you know, I still don't have words for (laughs) how I describe it, but, you know, the animation where that goes when you die and what this case is, what it means to you. Uh, I think it was more an explanation of that than maybe the grief process. Okay. Because funeral directors are, you know, you're trained a little bit in grief, but there are grief counselors who really handle that. So, you know, you see people during the wake, or you see them when they're planning the funeral or the pre-need, but you don't really see them through the long process of the grief.
1: Yeah, from what I had to go through with... Because my sister-in-law passed away, I think, almost two years ago. So it sort of fell on me to handle everything because... My wife and her sister-in-law and mother-in-law just weren't in a place to be able to do it. I understand. So that. it was interesting, and I know it's kind of strange using that word, but just walking through that that that, that process because it was largely uh, sort of a business transaction throughout right. the entire thing.
0: There's a lot of paperwork involved,
1: right? Yeah. So, it, and for me, I felt like that allowed me to sort of deal with it, and because. Well, I'll bring it up now, but I do want to talk to to you later about it. This whole idea of that when people think about grief, they feel like it's like finite, right? You get over it. And at some point, it's all done. And for me, especially with the death of my dad, is grief would come up at the oddest of moments. It's not when I'm doing anything specific that's associated with with, with him. Right. I remember I was, um, my wife was giving me a massage. I was on the floor and she started giving me a massage and I started bawling as hard as I ever had. I was just like I didn't care how ugly I looked or how bad right. I sounded and it was just like
0: Well, whatever point she hit, that's where you were holding all of that. Oh my god. You know, all of yeah. that inside. So it's great that she hit that point and that you let all that out. <laughs> Not that it's gone now. I mean, it still exists. I you know, I don't think there's any prescribed you know, um structure of grieving or you know I think we're um processing a loss I think that that is a completely unique experience and everybody goes through a different process I mean maybe there are some similarities but I don't think there's any one way to grieve you know in before my father passed away in studying funeral directing and all the things surrounding it and in practicing that I mean there was no way I could fully grasp what it was going to be like to lose my father There was no way I could fully prepare myself for that, you know, even though I was processing these other people's losses and helping them through their grief for the funerals, there was no way that that could prepare me for what I was to experience. You know, this is a new journey for me post my father's death. The grief that I'm experiencing is a new journey for me. I don't know what my timeline is for pulling out of grief or for feeling like, I've I'm done, <laughs> you know, and I don't yeah. know if that ever happens. So it's and it, yeah.
1: And it, it was your 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 father's health that brought you back to Los Angeles. It was. So yes. tell us about what was happening with him, and yeah, let's start with that.
0: Okay. I was living in New York at the time, I eight years in now at this point that I've been living in New York, and my mom let me know that something wasn't right with my dad. She didn't know what it was. She, there was no diagnosis or anything. Like there was just a an, an observation of the fact that my dad was acting differently than what his normal was. And enough so that my mom felt that there was a bigger problem, not just like a, you know, a temporary something right but a bigger maybe a, a genetic you know genetic or like a neuro or whatever there was something off right and different my dad was not the type of person who would immediately run into the doctor to find out what was wrong so i felt that it was necessary for me to come back and help assess the situation and try to get him to a doctor or to the caregiver whoever we thought would be the right place to help assess the situation and so eventually we did get him into the doctor and eventually we did get a diagnosis that it was parkinsons but it wasn't like you know a week a week's time frame i mean this was over the course of a couple of years that we finally got him and got a diagnosis and when we got the diagnosis he was still functional he could still do things on his own it wasn't like the parkinsons had fully taken over him the dementia had not come in yet the sundowning had not come in yet so it was just a diagnosis and maybe he had a little bit of muscle rigidity or a little bit of a tiny tremor in his right hand. Um Maybe some, you know, maybe he was a little bit more irritable than normal, like some mood changes a little bit, but nothing that was out of like out, out of the world, you know, like nothing that was astronomically different with him, but there were, there were some subtle changes.
1: Ex- explain that, I know you're not a doctor or psychologist, mm-hmm. yeah. but to your, from your understanding, can you briefly, briefly describe the difference between Alzheimer's, dementia, and sundowners?
0: Oh my, that's tough. Okay. So
1: <laughs> I, I will do I, my best. I ask, best, the, I ask but the tough questions yeah, here.
0: I am not a doctor, so please look it up online. But I believe that Dementia is a subset of Alzheimer's or else it's vice versa. Um, I, can, I can be more specific about sundowning. Sundowning is a smaller subset of the two. It's something that accompanies, I think it can accompany either one, dementia or, or Alzheimer's, but it does not necessarily happen to everybody who has Alzheimer's or dementia. And sundowning, it's called sundowner syndrome because it happens around sundown and it's like a delirium that an individual will experience where uh, often they will say i want to go home even if they're in their home this is a common phrase that has come up i think with several sundowning patients again i'm not an authority on this so please look it up or talk to your medical professionals about it for you know the real the real definition and you know symptoms but it's, it's like another added layer of, you know, the dementia or the mental illness.
1: And, and you started photographing this time with your dad as you and your mom were serving as their, as his primary caregiver, but it was a collaboration between you and your dad. Tell me about the, the conversation that you guys had okay. with respect to
0: that. Sure. We actually started the project in 2013. So he was still fully functional at that point, even though he had symptoms of Parkinson's, he was still, you know, going out and doing things and... Walking on his own, eating on his own, like you know, he was still a what would appear to be a fairly normal human being functioning wise. And so we agreed to do this project of me documenting him. It actually started as I wanted to log his family history because, you know, my dad came from another country. He was one of seven children, he was second oldest, and he was the first out of his family to leave that country and come to a new country and start a life. And so I really was so, I'm so, I'm just so proud of his journey and the successes that he's had in his life that I really wanted to document that. So in 2013, I had been talking about this for years that I'd wanted to do this. I had expressed it to a friend and she loved the idea and actually went off and did it with her family and... And I just felt like now I need to do this before my dad gets to a point where he won't be able to tell me his stories, Mm -hmm. right? And so in 2013, I really wanted to start. I started doing some video of him and logging some of his journey, but it proved that it was slightly difficult for him because of the Parkinson's. And so I realized that instead of being able to log that history, this might actually become more about His current struggle. And we discussed that, and he was open to it, you know, and he agreed that we'll do this together. So we did. And again, in 2013, I started this project, and he didn't have many signs to photograph. So the photos were fewer back then. And as the years progressed, as the Parkinson's exhibited more outward manifestations of the disease, It became more apparent that, you know, the imagery would be more important at that stage because you can actually see what's happening. And it wasn't really until the last two years of his life that I became a primary caregiver. I mean, I was there and I was around, but I didn't need to be there on like a, you know, moment-by-moment basis. ¶¶
1: Over the past few weeks, while conducting interviews for the show, I felt so much joy. As I sat down with each guest, there was a sense of delicious anticipation of what the next hour would bring. And with each interview, I never really know what will happen because despite all the research I do for each guest, I really want to make discoveries while having these conversations. As people are often surprised to find out, I don't work from a list of questions. I've just learned to trust my process, which includes research, staying present, and listening. More often than not, I think I'm able to offer you something that both entertains and inspires you. So when you contribute to the show, you are not only helping me to pay the monthly cost of producing it, You are affording me the time to prepare for each conversation, which includes hours of research, reading, and thinking about how this person's work and career fits into what we're trying to do here. Though we have occasionally relied on ads to support the show, it means much more to me when listeners contribute. It tells me that you believe that all the time and effort that I put into this thing is valuable. If that's how you feel about the show, but you haven't yet made the commitment, I hope that you'll do it today by becoming a Patreon supporter. Commit to a monthly contribution of $5 or more a month, and you'll be making a huge difference. That's about $1.25 an episode. Where else are you gonna get that much value for a buck and a quarter? So go to patreon.com forward slash frame and become a Patreon supporter today. You'll make my day, thanks. You know, there's a lot of challenges when you're having to take care of someone like like that, especially as their physical and mental capacity starts to diminish. Uh, And it takes an emotional toll as well. So at first it was your mom doing it. And I I guess at some point it was even too much for your mom. And so you had to sort of come in to, to do it. And as much as the work is about your dad... How did your mom fit in? Was she resistant? she not want to have anything to do with it? What was her response to that because it 's a really difficult time because in a very over a long period of time she 's slowly losing her husband in the midst of all that
0: right and I mean there's other things to think about too it's like not only is she losing her husband of fifty years. Uh-huh. Um, By the time he passed away, they had just celebrated their 50th anniversary. But it's also, I'm sure, a wake-up call about her own mortality, right? Because they're of the same generation. And I mean, you know, it was apparent that I would need to come in and help. I mean, my dad was in his 70s when all of this was going on, and so was my mom. So she couldn't physically do a lot of the work. And it just seemed like, you know, instead of getting outsiders to come in and do this work, I felt like I needed to give back and help. That's not to say that we didn't have outside caregivers because we did.
1: Awesome. You need it.
0: You need it. Yeah, yeah it's a big, it's a huge, not only emotional toll, but physical toll. So um, we definitely needed reprieves here and there. And um, we had a couple of really wonderful caregivers who came in and, you know, felt like family and took care of my dad uh, like he was their own. Couldn't have done it without them. I think that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So as things started getting, becoming more demanding in terms of his physical requirements, because at some point they they can't bathe themselves, they can't use the bathroom, all of those things, I know that he probably was losing weight, but still physically it's very taxing. You're doing all of that and then trying to find moments to make photographs too. So I can imagine that that got increasingly more of of a challenge, but you're also realizing simultaneously that this is important to document at the same time.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, My dad would also say at times when I maybe I didn't have my camera with me, he would say, "Go get your camera. You need to photograph this." (laughs) You know, so I mean, he was aware even in those end days of the project. It wasn't like he ever fully fell into dementia, or you know, he still would go in and out, and, and he was still aware that we had this thing together that we were doing which i think also probably he was very proud of the project i think it gave him something to look forward to each day but there were definitely times where i needed both hands on him so i couldn't have a camera in one hand and you know him in the other i mean like when i'm bathing him even though there are times where i do take pictures of him in the shower. Those were generally speaking on days when I had a caregiver in there who was helping so that I could just focus on the camera and not worry about him falling off of the bench in the shower or something like that. Or if my mom was helping dress him, you know, these were moments that I could bring her into the picture and you did ask uh, about what was her reaction and how did she want to be involved? And in the beginning, you know, she was, she, she never likes to be in front of a camera. So she was very resistant to be a part of the project in the beginning. And so in the beginning it was really just, you know, my dad because he was okay with it. Right. But as the story evolved and as my dad's abilities decreased you know, I explained to her the importance of having her in the work and showing the family because it's not just an individual disease. It affects all of us. Um, so she agreed to allow me to make the photographs with her in them. Um, and again, you know, I don't just release stuff into the world. I take my family into consideration and I get every, everything approved through them before I share it with the world. So everybody is on board, you know, with the work. As, that's been released.
1: As when your father got to the point where he couldn't verbalize anymore, was it more difficult sometimes to make certain photographs?
0: He he never got to the point where he couldn't speak. Okay. Except for the day that he died. On that day, he was not able, he was not he was not able to speak. But really up until the day that he passed away, he was still able to get out of the bed with assistance, get in the shower with assistance to say to to talk. But again, like you know, the dementia would come in and go out. So sometimes when he would speak, it would not be sentences that you and I might understand, but then it might be, right? It would go between kind of a, I don't know if it was Arabic or babbling, and then into actual words that you could recognize.
1: This this work really struck me. It, it continues to resonate with me, especially now as I'm facing similar circumstances in, in my own life. And I've been talking to friends who have faced the, very same circumstances. And to say that it's a roller coaster is is just doesn't seem to be apt enough because right. this is every sort of emotion that you can imagine happens. It's not just some people look at it, see what we're doing and go, Oh, so wonderful. It's so altruistic to take care of your mother in law and your right. mother in your own house without them sort of really understanding the demands that it, it takes. That individually, in a marriage, all, all that stuff. And and one of the things that some of my friends have talked about are those moments where they, they've they gotten to the point where they just want it to end, right? And not that they want that person to die, right. but that it's just it's just so much. And it seems like, how can we go another day and we don't want to see the person that we love suffering in that way. right? And I've not gotten to that point at, at all. But I think about the sort of... The guilt and the shame that can come from that, and sure. sort of feeling that, because I think very few people who are going through that want to admit it, because it makes them right. feel like they're a bad, sort of a Callous bad, or bad right. person. So when you were going through all, all those extremes, from having those moments, just like I described, to those moments where you're just having, just these moments of just joy with your with your fa- father and, and your mother. Besides taking the picture, how were you taking care of yourself during that time?
0: Um, That's a really important question because I don't think family caregivers realize the value of sometimes stepping out of the equation for a little bit. You really, really do need to take care of yourself as well as your loved one who is suffering. You need to make sure you have additional help who can come in and give you reprieve. You need to make time to either take a walk or work out or do something that allows you to you know, sweat it out, you know, or put that energy somewhere else that's bettering you in some way. You know, doing the photo project with my dad gave us this bridge together, right? It kind of brought us closer together in a time where this disease was pulling us farther apart. And I'm so thankful that we decided to do this project together, even Before we knew really what we were going to encounter with the disease. Because when we agreed, he was still, like I said, in functioning order. And um, maybe he just had a small tremor in his hand at that point. So... We had no idea the extreme that it would become or the fact that my dad would become my child and that I was changing his diaper and bathing him and feeding him with a spoon, you know, because he couldn't lift a spoon to his mouth or raise a cup to his mouth and swallow or that I'd have to aspirate the mucus out of his throat in the morning Mm -hmm. before giving him his medicine. I mean, just things that you would never, ever dream you would have to do for your parent.
1: No, but in terms of just taking care of yourself. you're
0: Oh, right, Mm -hmm. right. And so, you know, you have to carve out time for something that you love that is not a part of that scenario of caregiving. And again, the photo project, I love photography. It's my passion. And so to be able to do that with my dad, even though we're dealing with really difficult subject matter or something that maybe I have no objectivity about because I'm so close to the subject of the work, it's still allowed... A little bit of a break in a way because I had something that I had to think critically about right I had to think about my composition I had to think about what I'm trying to convey in this image like it brought me back to my world of photography that I do outside whether it's on the street or portraits or event photography or nightlife whatever it is that I'm shooting I'm still I'm thinking in those ways and when I'm thinking in those ways it's like the world kind of falls away and I'm just kind of focused on making an image so For me, there's a freedom in that and it's liberating. So to be able to do that with my dad in this really dire and dark situation of watching him slip away out of my hands did allow a certain sort of creative burst, I guess.
1: And it's been a little more than a year since he passed away?
0: Yes. He passed away on January 1st of 2018. So it's just been a year and a couple months. So how
1: how long did it take before you were able to look at the work?
0: You know, it's still hard for me to look at the work. Um, I still haven't finished processing all of my images that I shot. I have to revisit that. And I need to start to try to finalize the body of work. It's really hard to say. I mean, I, I had to look at some of it immediately just to... Not allow it to just slip into the, you know, abyss. Mm -hmm. I mean, we made this work for a purpose and I didn't want to lose the rawness, I guess, of selecting the images that spoke the strongest to me having been fresh in that experience. But it's also, I mean, it's so difficult for me to look at this image, these images. This is my dad's decline. I mean, it's not, it wasn't easy the first time going through it live. And then it's not easy looking at it in in the past, right? As something that happened a year and a little bit ago.
1: Yeah, because I can imagine that in the midst of helping them, you're so busy in helping them that those sort of emotions are sort of put aside. But when you're looking at the photographs,
0: you don't have that excuse anymore. No, Exactly. Yeah, you have to go into survival mode when you're in the moment taking care of the person and you do. You have to kind of build padding around yourself even though you're witnessing this thing firsthand and you are probably preparing yourself in certain ways with anticipatory grief because you can see the ravages of the disease on the person and you know that day is coming soon but you don't ever know when that day is going to come you know I mean the day that my dad died like he was acting weird that day he wasn't able to verbalize anything he wasn't really eating anything he um, had this look of this strange look on his face and we didn't have a caregiver that day because it was the first day of the new year they had asked for the day off and so we did have a bathing nurse come that day. Generally speaking, I would have gotten him out of the bed and gotten him into the shower, but he was acting so strange that we called the bathing nurse to come in and just bathe him in the bed, which was something we had never really done before. We'd only had him bathed in the bed once prior. He was in a hospital bed, so you know it was easy to lift him and turn him and whatnot in that bed. But uh, we had the bathing nurse come, and he, he s- seemed very off on that day. Like, he was seemed a little bit agitated and just not in a, in a, not in a state that we had ever seen him before. And I still didn't have a clue that that was the day he was going to leave us, you know. But I did have enough sense to call my sister and say, I think you should come up with the boys. You know, she lives a couple hours away. And my two nephews, and I, they had been planning to come the next day to spend a week with us and him. And I did have the sense to call her and say, "Listen, he's acting really strange today. I think you should just come up." And so they did, and they got there probably around I think like ten at night. It was it was late when they arrived, but he was still with us at that point. And maybe about a half hour after they arrived, he left. Hmm. You know, it's like he 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 knew they were coming. He waited, even though we couldn't communicate as a two person conversation. You know, I think he did understand they were coming. And he waited. I mean, we hear stories like that all the time. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, all the pictures that you took, which is your personal favorite? Oh, I know there are a lot of photographs, but there's awkward. the one that right now. that.
0: <laughs> you know, there's a portrait I made of him that is, I think it's about right here. Like it starts, the bottom of the frame starts about mid-nose on him, and it's the top of his head. And there's a curl in his hair, which I used to do after the... After the um caregiver would comb him out and groom him to look really, you know, prim and proper, I would come in and mess up his hair mm-hmm. <laughs> and put this curl in his hair and uh I'd made this portrait of him that's just the top of his head. It's his eyes on the top of his head, and I really love that portrait of him. There's also the one of him in the bathroom mirror that has two reflections, one in a um in a side mirror to that main mirror and one in a little um freestanding, you know, hand, hand mirror that's on the counter. And so there are three You see all three of his faces there in each respective mirror. And I love that one so much because I also think it really represents the loss of self that he was going through. Um, And then there's the one where he's in the car and it was his last adventure out of the house. He really wanted to get out of the house. And as much of a struggle as it was to get him into a vehicle and somewhere, anywhere... At that point in his life, because he he had very small windows of opportunity, I like to call them opportunity, because the medicine, his whole life was ruled by time at this point. The timing of the medication, like you can't eat an hour prior to that, you can't eat, you mm-hmm. know, an, an hour, whatever the, the rules were, you know, after that. You have to take the medicine at this specific time every day, you know. And everything, the, the, the medicine would take an hour before it would like start to populate his body and give him mobility. So everything was based on time, right? The clock became our keeper. So for me to take him on an adventure in a car was really just, I mean, we had like an hour to work with, right? I mean, the second we get him up for lunch... We have to get him to the toilet, change his diaper, make sure he's clean, get food in him. And then, you know, he had maybe two hours to eat and get the bed straightened and, you know, change his diaper and do anything that he would need. And then we'd have to get him back in the bed because he would start to go down from the meds. Like the the duration that the medicine would work was very short towards the end. So that photo of him where we've taken him on his last adventure outside of the house where he wanted to go to the place, and I say that with air quotes because he called it the place and couldn't tell me exactly where it was that was such a special moment. And when we would get him out of the house into the car, it's like he, his whole composure would change. It was like just seeing the world again, I think was exciting for him. A change of scenery from, you know, the, the jail cell of the house.
1: <laughs> My mother-in-law, she loves getting out on the deck. Cause when she lived in her house, she spent a lot of time on a porch. Right. She's from Mississippi. So they did a lot of that. Right. So when we're done here,
0: She'll go out. She'll on the get porch. on the
1: porch and I just give her her music. <laughs> She'll be out. And she, she's in the back and then she's singing all those gospel hymnals in the back. That's and, wonderful. You know, she just wants to be out in the sun and you can yeah. just see when she knows that she's going to be out there. It's just like. Yeah, the anticipation. I'm
0: sure the excitement, oh, you yeah. know, overwhelms so, her. Um, uh, your
1: your yeah. dad was the one who came up with the name for the project. Tell us did. about that.
0: He did. Yeah. One day, uh, this was already at a point where he could not write anymore he asked me for a piece of paper and a pencil and so i brought them to him he wanted to convey something and so he wanted a paper and a pencil and he really wanted me to bring that so i brought it over and he took the pencil and he started writing on the paper and i looked at what he was doing and he was just making scribbles and so i said to him papa do you want me to take some notes and he said yeah so i took the pen and paper and he he said something to the effect of he was aware that he was unaware that he was losing himself and he, he said that after he, he said something, something, something personality crash, right? And I asked him, what does that mean? What, wh- who's having a personality crash? Is it me? Is it you? Is it someone else? And that's when he said that he was aware, that he was unaware, that he was losing himself. And to me, that was such an awakening. It was such an awakening that uh, allowed me to see that he actually was aware of what he was going through. And I mean, the term, I've never heard the term personality crash before, but could that be any more appropriate for what was going on? I mean, it just fit perfectly.
1: Yeah, that, uh, my mom is showing early signs of that. And once I sort of made the connection with it, it started making me understand why she's been as agitated as she's been. Yes, yes. Because she, she could, I wish, mean, just like you just described, she probably senses that there's something going on, but she can't really verbalize it. Right. And so she'll just get very frustrated and agitated when she's explaining something or I'm explaining something to her, or it's very strange.
0: Well, I think that that, yeah, I think this was the moment that my father was finally able to express it in a term that I could understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine how frustrating it is to have all of these emotions and feelings and things you want to convey and just have it bottled up inside of you because you've lost your ability to communicate. Yeah.
1: Well, it's beautiful and powerful work. And I'm Thank you. I'm so glad I know a person who can create something that good. <laughs> Thank you. It's- but-
0: very kind of you.
1: Uh, your other work is just as fascinating. The stuff that you've been doing with the sort of, I guess, the burlesque, is that the correct name for, for what you've been shooting?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of subcultures and nightlife in LA okay. and burlesque, neo burlesque is one of the you know facets of that.
1: And the Mexican wrestling,
0: Mexican wrestling, oh the luchadors God. and the drag queens, the drag scene. And there's some other stuff too, that I'm slowly moving into, but it's a little bit less accessible so it's a little bit harder to break down the you know the door to get in
1: you don't choose boring subjects
0: no i like <laughs> colorful people i like interesting people who you know push boundaries or live outside of the norm in some way shape or form so,
1: so let's talk a little bit about that because i think it's fascinating because there's so many photographers who i've interviewed that they we talk about the whole issue of identity that that's something that's right. being being explored but it's really sort of interesting for you that all the work, even the stuff with your dad, is about identity. In this case, it's about the loss loss of it. Right. And then with these other people that you're photographing in these subcultures, it's all about creating a, a distinctive identity right. that is sort of away from sort of the norm. And you, you, you talked about your own sort of nebulousness, if that's a word, in terms of you seem to have an ability to you seem to be more comfortable sort of flitting through all these cultures rather than finding yourself rigidly defined into one right. place. So is that part of... I think that's well the, said. Because I don't think, I don't see you as really being a part of those cultures and you're sort of doing it inside out. I think it's kind of like you got one foot in and one foot out. Not, And that's not to diminish the work that you're doing. But in terms of just trying to take a... a, a, a have an under greater understanding in terms of what's happening overall. I know I'm probably, you know, I, I don't have a psychology degree, so this is probably <laughs> all kind of blowing smoke. But I'm, you know, I try to sort of understand what connects any body of work for someone because there's always a reason why they're driven to photograph what they sure. do. And since since identity is really at the core of everything that you do, yes. which it was I'm really curious to see how you perceive it.
0: Um, well, I think I've always mm-hmm. been different and like you said I do not fit into a box I think that's been my biggest struggle throughout life is the fact that I color outside the lines and that I don't fit into a box meaning that you know I can't just work in an office and you know type away at a computer or whatever it's like I don't I don't grow or flourish in something like that and not that that's a bad thing to do with your life it's just not right for me so you know I I was a breech birth I came out butt first so I was challenging from the start (laughs) I think it all goes back to that really honestly um but I think also I've always just kind of been an oddball, like I don't know that I necessarily always fit in anywhere, and so I think there's somehow some way that I find kinship with these people who are pushing into new areas of expression. I used to be more colorful on the outside when I was younger, but having had a couple injuries in my life, you know, some of. Uh, restrictive clothing I can't really wear anymore or, you know, belts or things like that. So I think I've become a little bit less apparent on the outside, but I think I'm still kind of that creative, you know, non-conformist on the inside. And I just really, um, I'm drawn to people like that who are not going with the flow, right? People who are not just doing what they're told to do. These are people who are finding communities outside of the norm that are pushing boundaries, either, you know, like body boundaries or performance boundaries or, you know, stereotype boundaries or whatever. Like they're just Um, they are challenging the norms of our society in some way, shape, or form. And a lot of them live on the fringe because of that. They, you know, don't necessarily have the support. I'm not speaking for everybody, but, you know, I'm sure there are people who are estranged from their families who are living in these ways, but have found new community with the people who are similar to them living in these ways. And that, to me, is interesting when people choose to find their own family through these self-expressions.
1: Do you... Do you find because we're associated with the Los Angeles Center of Photography and you have a lot of sort of friends there? Yes. But do you still feel like you have that sort of as much as you like being with those people there? Do you still feel that sort of disconnectedness that you may have felt? Um, Because photographers are, because photographers are pretty. I don't want to say antisocial. I, that's not the right that, that's right word. We're kind of loners to sort of a great a great degree, and right. our interactions largely revolve around photography.
0: Right. I and would say I would say that's actually true for street photographers or the the type of work that I'm doing with subcultures and whatnot. I don't know about portrait photographers or commercial photographers. They seem like they're probably not as lonely or isolated as a street <laughs> photographer per se. <laughs> um, or a, or a documentary photojournalist, or you know, I feel like we're kind of the ones who are working on our own in the trenches um, mm. uh, so I'm sorry, what was
1: no, question? just in terms of just feeling like part of because you were talking right. about these people are are if they are not linked intimately with their families of birth, that they're basically recreating communities for themselves, right, and since identity is largely a part of who you associate with right i'm I'm wondering about. Where do you find that, that community? Is that the photo community, or do you still find yourself, you like sort of meandering and moving through communities and spaces and, and not really establishing a particular loyalty to one group over another?
0: I, I mean, I think I have always, it was, I'm a Gemini, so I think I have a lot of sides to myself. I mean, doesn't everybody who's not necessarily a Gemini? Um, we all do. But I think that I have always been a chameleon, Throughout my life, I mean, like you said, I have this very eclectic background where I've changed my role, my professional role, Mm -hmm. several times. I have always wanted to be a million things, and that has led to that eclectic journey. I don't necessarily think that I... Don't belong in those communities. I mean, I feel like I do. I'm an advocate for them, and I also am such. Um, I'm inspired by these people. Like I, I photograph them because I find beauty in what they do, and I really do act from a place of love and awe when I work with them. It's not that I want to. I don't want to portray them in a bad light. You yeah. know, I really want. I want the world to see what they're doing and the fact that they live in these ways or or find community in these ways and then a lot of it b- is based around performance so you know they express themselves in these ways or perform in these ways and I don't know what a lot of them do in their normal you know day per se cuz a lot of this stuff happens at night so I don't know if somebody's you know working a normal job during the day or not or if they're just s- solely living within the performance aspect of these communities or somehow in these communities mm-hmm. but I am interested in them. I'm intrigued by them. Like I said, I never felt like I fit in a box in the in the nine-to-five working world. So I, I'm, I'm curious about how people survive in that way. You know, I, I feel like with exposure, we can all gain acceptance, you know? And maybe people won't treat... I feel like there's a lot of... In the last several years, there's been a lot of kind of... Backwards behavior coming out where people are losing their rights, and that's not the direction that I feel the world should go. And I want to do what I can to help, maybe shift it back in the direction it was going before the current change of the you know the flow.
1: Yeah, um, that question is probably more of a reflection on me because <laughs> <laughs> I because I, I, I've I've never like you I've never felt like I sort of fit in right and. I find in that particular community that we were talking about, I feel like it's my ability to be of service to people that allows me to sort of fit in there, rather right. than the fact that I'm just being myself, right. which is probably a disservice to me. You know, but you know, because to some degree, I'm more comfortable in my skin right. today than I ever have before. Right. But in terms of how we choose to identify ourselves, it's really sort of interesting the mechanics through which we find ourselves and find a community of people in which we feel safe and and, and enriched by.
0: Right. And I'm sure that my openness to these lifestyles is also influenced by the fact that I did study with Catherine Opie and the fact that I did work with Grace Jones. I mean, my openness and my eclecticness and my, you know, nonconformity had already taken me in those directions, right, with Kathy and Grace. So... Two people who also lived or associated with groups outside of the norm. So, to me, that was just acceptable, right? I mean, that was there was there's color in there, there's diversity in there, there's interesting, you know, mind pushing things happening there, and and also in the art realm, you know, I, ca- I came from art school, so I was already open to experimentation and things that are different and outside of the norm. You know performance art like there in New York, there was tons of performance art going on when I was in college, there was tons of performance art going on. I was involved in performance art you know so so these cultures that are these subcultures that are performing in this way to me are just extensions of that i mean it's performance art it's creating a persona that they don't have inhibitions with that they don't feel like the world rejects them or you know or whatever i don't want to I don't want to um you know project their emotions because i i can't speak for the groups or you know why they're doing it everybody has their own reasons mm-hmm. but i think that you know they have sought out these communities to create their personas that they feel most comfortable with revealing to the world in this way you know we all need love and affection nobody can go through their life saying i don't care about being accepted right. i mean we all need it to some degree so i like to highlight their creativity and the fact that they are living outside of the norm and, and, and pushing boundaries, and I find true beauty in that.
1: I love looking at your work. It's just, the things you do compositionally, I just marvel at. Thank you. When the stuff that's in, the stuff that you've done with Dan, the stuff that you do with uh, the burlesque, uh, the stuff especially, the stuff with the wrestling, it is just, I look at those and I just go...
0: Well, the wrestling, oh. I have no control over any of that, you know, so it really is just... Working a situation the best I can for that very split second moment. I mean, well,
1: you're doing it incredibly, <laughs> incredibly you. well. But, we're, but even even though you don't have control over what's happening in wrestling, with the wrestling, there is a consistency in all of your work in terms of framing and how you see, in terms of timing. How much of that is born from more than just taking a lot of pictures?
0: Um, well, I definitely keep myself going through continuing education. I mean, I like we talked about, I'm involved in LA Center of Photography. I've studied with you, I've studied with other wonderful photographers there. And I always want to expand my toolbox. I mean I never think that I know everything and there's always something to learn or see in a new way and sometimes you get stuck in ruts and if you don't continue your education in some way, shape or form, you will just kind of narrow your point of view, right? So I like to stay involved. I like to study with new people who come through there and can teach me. Even if it's just one tool that I add to my toolbox, that's something new and that will expand the way that I see the world and the way I work with my camera. I think it's important that everybody does that throughout their life. That you just, you know, if you come to a point where you think you know everything, then I think your soul has died. Like there's always something new to learn.
1: It wasn't too long ago that uh, the work that you did with your dad got profiled in the New York Times, and I think I sent you a a message soon after
0: you did and it was
1: like oh my god it seemed (laughs) like you were getting inundated with so much attention and it's as as deserving as that work is for that attention you're never really kind of ready for it especially when it's so fresh so tell me about dealing with all of that over the past six months or a year however long it's been
0: Um, It was, yeah, it was intense. I mean, I think that piece was published on, I want to say it was August 31st of 2018. So yeah, it's just almost been a year. It was, well, number one, releasing that work into the world was very scary for me. I was fresh in the grieving process. I was nowhere near being done. I'm still not done. I don't know when done is. But I was very fresh in grief, and it just kind of happened. It wasn't like I sought it out. It happened organically and came to me in a, in a very natural way um, through meeting Jonathan Blaustein at um, Exposure Weekend for LA Center of Photography. And I just happened to share that work in a, in a workshop that I was taking with him, I brought four bodies of work to share in that workshop. I wasn't sure that I was going to share that work. I had not really shared that work much prior to that moment. Um, I had shown it to a few people, but not really to many. And it certainly wasn't out in the world in any way, shape, or form. The only piece that I had given any images to was an upworthy.com piece that I had been interviewed for about caregiving. And so I had given, I think, three images from the body of work to them just to illustrate the caregiving story. But I really hadn't spoken about the piece or the project as a whole. And I hadn't released more than those three images. And, you know, I think those same three images I had already released on my Instagram page, but that was it. It's still (laughs) overwhelming to put that work out into the world. But after Jonathan saw the work, he was blown away by it. And he really just felt like, it should, I mean, he felt like Lens was the right place for that to be released. And, you know, my dad and I had specific ideas behind how that work would function when he passed away. And it wasn't just to be released, you know, anywhere per se, right. but only on the best platforms where it could do the best work to help people. And when Jonathan came to me and said, you know, the New York Times wants to publish that work. I mean, could it be a better platform? I I couldn't turn that down, even though I may not have been ready personally in my grief process and to be able to confront the wave of response, whether Mm -hmm. negative or positive, I had no idea what I was going to see. But I knew that if I missed that opportunity, I may not have another one down the line that would be so, uh, what's the right word, like so honorable. So I consulted my family and we all decided it was the right time to do it. And so I did. And um, the response was amazing and overwhelming. I mean, I really had no way to prepare for that either. I mean, I got messages from so many people that I did not know saying how much the work had moved them and how much it meant to them because they were either going through something similar or had experienced something similar and they could recognize things in the photos that were familiar to their personal experience. And for me, that was eye-opening because I, I mean, I know that... There's, you know, so many people suffering from Parkinson's and dementia and, you know, sundowners, too, in the world. There's, you know, millions. But there are moments in those photos that I thought were so unique to our family. Like, I had no idea that that was actually a universal experience. And so, for me, it was also eye-opening to learn that, We had a bigger community than we thought we had. There there are people who understood the the image where, um, in the Times, they published an image where my father is sleeping in the bed and his finger is raised in the air. And it's a bird's eye shot of him and the finger is in focus. He's slightly, you know, so it's shallow depth of field and so he's slightly out of focus in the background. And you know this was something that would happen all the time with him when he would sleep. He would have hallucinations I think in his dreams and his his arm would gesticulate like that in a pointed fashion and this happened on numerous occasions. And I got responses from people saying, "I know that. Mm-hmm. I know that finger in the air." You know, that happened with my dad.
1: There's a picture I guess either your uh, your mother or the um the assistant is helping your dad in the chair, I guess, in yeah, the bathroom. Yeah, my mom. Yes. And there's that that waist belt. Yes. It, what is it called?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know what its technical but, term is, but, but yeah, it's it's like a gate belt or something. Gate belt. Yeah. Gate belt. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I wouldn't have yes. recognized that two years ago. Right. I but saw it now in a photograph. You know. I go, I know what that is. Yeah. I know what it's for. Yep. Yeah. Because
0: you have that experience now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That uh, I'm sure spoke to a lot of people too. So did the teddy bear. The fact that my dad was communicating with the teddy bear that that became yeah. his baby. Also, uh, there's a photo image of a portrait of him where he's sitting in our kitchen and the French doors are open behind him and it's kind of this... Almost like a, you know, um, like a homage to a Renaissance painting or something (laughs) where this beautiful light is kind of flooding in from behind him. And it's just kind of shoulders up and he's got the recliner chair cover on his head that he would often just pull off of there and put on his head because he wore it as a hat. It was just something he would do, right? A cute little funny behavior that we laugh at because it's humorous, you know, but he, he just thought, you know. I'm just going to put this on my head, and
1: And as difficult as those circumstances are, there are those moments.
0: They are those moments. There are those moments that are just
1: absolutely beautiful.
0: They are. They're wonderful moments. And the funny thing is, other people had had experiences like that too, and I didn't know this until that flood of response came in. So it was eye-opening for me. As scary as it was, as much as it felt like you know my family is standing naked at the front of the room by exposing you know this work it really has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. I've, I've made friendships across the world because of it. I have an, a, a friend in Ireland now, and I have a friend in New York who's, who has a mother who um, is in the early stages of Parkinson's, and he just made a documentary film about her. Um, you know, it's like a new community has opened up for me That's through wonderful. this. Yeah,
1: It's a wonderful legacy for both you and your dad.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired and someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be and why?
0: Well, it's really tricky because there's so many people I could just like <laughs> list off for hours. But I recently discovered two photographers. So I wanted to
1: okay.
0: I wanted to offer them up for this question. One is Lauren E. Simonudi, and she, both of these people are deceased, so you just have to research online for their work. But Lauren made like haunting, beautiful moving work about herself dealing with her own mental illness and isolation. I think in t- 2006, she started hearing voices, and she was diagnosed with, and I'm quoting this because this I, I've never heard of this before, but she was diagnosed with rapid cycling mixed state bipolar with schizoaffective disorder. And once she had that diagnosis, she made this body of work. It's incredible work, and I think everybody should see it. Um, The other person is Stephen F. Arnold. I recently discovered his work. He uh, is a surrealist visionary. He also has passed away, but he was a protege of Salvador Dali, and he was here from the L.A. area. He was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988 at the height of his popularity and died in 1994. So I think um, Fahey Klein has some of his work on view, possibly soon. I don't know. I know it's in their collection. I just I don't know where else they could see it other than online or um, possibly there if they live in LA.
1: Yeah, I'll find some links and I'll pass them on. But awesome! Okay. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you! It was wonderful.
1: Thanks to Safi for sharing her time and story. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting flashbulbfloozy.com. And to find out more about Parkinson's disease, go to the American Parkinson's Disease Association at apdaparkinson.org. And in the show notes, you'll also find a link for resources for caring for elderly parents and relatives provided by the American Society on Aging. Remember that you don't have to, nor should you do it alone. If you want to be the one to welcome listeners at the top of the show, as Mr. Tremblay did this week, just send us an audio file recorded on your phone, tablet, or computer saying something like, this is Rebecca Smalls from London, England, and this is the Cander Frame. Say it at least a couple of times so we have a take to choose from, and include three to four seconds of silence with your voice to help us clean the audio and make sure to include a link to your website, blog, or Instagram feed when you send it to info at the I have a variety of workshops and events coming up in the coming months, including one in May in Washington, D.C. at the Focus on the Story Photo Festival, a two-day workshop in June at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, and a week-long cultural experience in Tokyo, Japan in December. I'm also finalizing details for a trip to Vancouver, Canada, that I'll be announcing soon with a former guest from the show. You can find out more by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com. And if you want to get a sense of my teaching style and approach to photography, you should check out my YouTube channel where I offer critiques and evaluations of photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. You can check out the TCF pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. I've been making the rounds promoting my latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow. And while the title may not be the sexiest, I'm pleased to hear that people who have picked up a copy are finding that it provides them new insight into how to see and make photographs. Whether you're new to photography or been wielding a camera for years, I think you'll find some invaluable insights that will really transform your photography. You can order your copy today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published eBooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes, Spotify, the Google play store, or wherever you find and listen to podcast. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Yvonne Miller Nixon. William Robbins, Frank Field, and David Moore for their recent contributions. Thank you so much. And if you want to easily access every episode of the Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at eBodyNX. And this is ebodynx, and, and this is The Candid Frame.